Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Ben, you sounded so, uh, tired. Do I? And I'm Ben. Oh, I didn't mean to come across that way. I'm sorry. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, We spent a lot of time outside today, and that was really nice. I think I have a sunburn. Well, that's not difficult. Uh, Sarah is um, as as white as the driven snow, uh, and so... Wouldn't it be undriven snow? You know, you might be right, but... Because po- driven snow is dirty. Uh, yes, that's fair. I feel like that phrase dates back to when, like, you drove on snow with, like, sleighs, but the point is you're very pale. Yes. And so you burn at the slightest provocation. Yes. Yeah. I am also pale, but I think I just, like... You just tan. I just brown. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's that Romanian blood. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Because <laughs> it's certainly not the English blood. Because <laughs> my dad definitely is more like you. Yeah. Hey, we have a new patron. Oh, yes. That is right. Uh, very exciting for us here at Scream Scene whenever we have a new patron to thank at the top of the show. Today we are giving our thanks to Sarah Dawson. Sarah, you have a great name. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for signing up for our Patreon. We really appreciate it. And if you'd like to be like Sarah, you can sign up at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. So what are we watching today, Ben? What's, uh, What's in store? Well, today, Sarah, we've got a movie I'm pretty intrigued by. Excited for. Uh, It has the potential to be pretty interesting. Okay. It's Invaders from Mars from 1953. Okay. And, you know, in the interests of transparency, full disclosure, um, I had initially planned not to watch this movie for the show. uh, Because this movie fits, it's definitely sci-fi, and it fits very squarely in the alien invasion genre. It's in the title, so yeah. yeah. (laughs) It was pretty expressly made to cash in on War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and War of the Worlds I don't consider to be a horror film. Uh, no. It's, it's a war movie, basically. I yeah. mean, it's, that's like, in the title, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've watched War of the Worlds, not for the podcast, um, and I would agree, it is not... There's horrific things. Yes. But it's not a horror movie. Um, would that... That would have obviously come out already by this time. So, this movie was actually rushed into production to get into theaters first. Oh, so, like, riding the coattails of the marketing yeah, yeah. coming out in advance. I see. Yeah. And, which we've seen a few times now. Yeah. Um, so, I, I didn't really think of this as being a horror movie, but uh, listener Nicholas Harold asked if we were going to be covering it. And, you know, based on what he had to say about it and him asking us if we were going to cover it, I thought, okay, I better... Give this a second look. The main thing that sort of ended up convincing me, like, okay, let's do this, is the number of people on, like, IMDb or film review sites or, like, bloggers or whatever 
who talk about this movie as being a movie they saw as a kid that, like, terrified them and gave them nightmares and, like, stuck with them their whole lives. Sure. I mean, The Secret of Nim kind of did that for me. It's not a horror movie, though. Well, looking into the movie more, I think it's going to depend, like, what we think when we watch it. But I think even if it turns out to not be a horror movie in the context of... The show? Us. Yeah. Um, the fact that we have Curse of the Cat people on under this category of, like, horror for children... Oh, yeah. ...brings me to think that, like, that's what this movie is. It's explicitly aimed at a young audience. Okay. And um, the story is definitely meant to be sort of a nightmarish one for children. So I think it's fair to classify it as horror for children. But we'll see if that ends up kind of being the way we shake out on it after we watch it. Now, you're bringing up Curse of the Cat People. Uh, I really doubt the pacing of the movie will be the same. No. Because Curse of the Cat People has very, like, slow... Languid. Languid, deliberate pace. Mm -hmm. And Invaders from Mars implies something a bit more lively. Yeah, we'll have to see. The origin of this movie, I think, ties into what I said earlier about it being nightmarish. Okay. So, in 1949, screenwriter John Tucker Battle's wife, Vivian, had a nightmare about Martians invading Earth. Uh, she woke him up to recount the dream she had in vivid detail. Amazing. So that John could write it down. Uh, with UFOs being kind of big in the news in 1949... Uh, Battle decided to write a screenplay on the subject using his wife's dream as the basis. He considered writing it from a woman's point of view, but based on his experience as a writer on Walt Disney's So Dear to My Heart, he decided to make the film's POV that of the intended target audience, which is to say a young boy. Mm -hmm. Battle's screenplay was optioned uh, by independent producers Arthur Gardner and Jules V. Levy. Uh, they hired writer Richard Blake to revise the script. Blake took the idea of the film's origin to kind of the next step and wrote this nightmarish horror movie for children, um, ultimately explained at the end of the film as having been a literal nightmare of the main kid character. Okay. Battle was incensed by the addition of a it-was-all-a-dream ending and demanded that his name be taken off the movie leaving the final version of the script in September of 1950 to be credited to Richard Blake alone. Unfortunately, Gardner and Levy couldn't get the production off the ground, and so their option lapsed. Uh, and the movie was not made uh, until a bit later, when independent producer Edward L. Alperson heard about the script from Levy, who by that time in 1952 was working for Alperson. Now, Alperson had begun his Hollywood career as a film salesman for independent distributor Preferred Pictures, which went bankrupt in 1925. Yes, they weren't very preferred. <laughs> From there, Alperson went to work in the distribution arm of Warner Brothers, becoming good friends and eventually the assistant to Spiros Skouras, who was at that time the head of Warner Brothers. That is a very unique name. He's Greek. Okay. Head of distribution at Warner Brothers, I should say, because obviously the head of Warner Brothers was 
the Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, in 1934, Alperson left Warner Brothers to found Grand National Films to distribute independent movies and British movies in the U.S., but by 1936, he was making enough money that he decided to branch out into producing films as well. Um, so he started, you know, doing the Poverty Row thing and producing low-budget movies. But things went poorly. Oh, no. Because, um, so James Cagney, who was, you know, big star for Warner Brothers, had refused to do a movie for Warner Brothers, another crime film. Cagney was definitely like typecasting crime films. So Warner Brothers put him on suspension. So then he took the movie that he wanted to do uh, instead of a crime film, which was a musical <laughs> called Something to Sing About to Alperson at Grand National because he knew Alperson from when Alperson was with Warner Brothers. Grand National made Something to Sing About, which was a massive flop when it was released in 1937, which ended Grand National Films. Oh, no. Oh, Cagney probably felt so bad. He went back to Warner Brothers and made the crime film that they wanted him to make. Of course, that's, yeah, of course he would do that. But when Spiros Skouras became president of 20th Century Fox in 1942, he remembered Alperson, and he brought him on as an independent producer with an exclusive distribution contract with Fox, starting with the film Black Beauty in 1946. About the horse? Yeah, the ball started rolling on Invaders from Mars again because Fox was looking for an alien invasion movie that they could rush into production to get out before War of the Worlds. And here was a script. That had already had work done on Yeah, it. all it's finished, kind of ready all ready to, to, go. to go. Exactly. Yeah, so this is like the perfect thing for them. The big deal with War of the Worlds, uh, other than like, just it being this adaptation of this big H.G. Wells novel at a time when, like, this is the genre to be making. Um, Paramount was producing it in color, so it was going to be the first, like, color sci-fi movie, right? And if you've seen the movie, color kind of plays a role into how the aliens are portrayed. Yes. Also, it was going to just be a huge production. Uh, yeah. War of the Worlds had a budget of $2 million dollars. Yeah, it was a big deal. So Fox's goal here was to not just beat it into theaters, but to beat it into theaters as the first color alien invasion film. Because that was what was the big distinction mark of War of the Worlds. So, Invaders from Mars had to shoot very quickly in late 1952 to get into theaters in early 1953 to beat War of the Worlds. Uh, unlike War of the Worlds with its $2 million budget, Invaders from Mars had a budget of $290,000. Oh, no. That's like, that's a little bit more than what Luton had for his movies. Yeah, and yeah. And they were just in black and white. Mm-hmm. So, William Cameron Menzies was brought on to direct this movie, and he is a very notable person in the history of Hollywood. Okay. Born in 1896, Menzies served in the U.S. Army in World War I, and he also attended Yale the University of Edinburgh, and the Art Students League of New York. He got his start at Paramount in the 1920s in special effects and art design. He won acclaim for the sets he created for Robin Hood in 1922. Oh, nice. The Thief of Baghdad in 1924, and The Bat in 1926. Oh, so we've seen his work. Yeah. He won the first Academy Award for art direction in 1927 for his work on the film The Dove. 
So to explain what an art director does, because I think it's a title that people hear and, and don't quite like really know the specifics of. I've always seen it as kind of like you are in charge of the general look, like the mise-en-scene. Kind of. So an art director is the head of a film's art department. So they're above the set designers and set decorators and concept artists and all of those guys. They manage those guys as well as set construction. Um, that's kind of what they do. They're the head of that department. Now, on the strength of his work on The Adventures of Tom Sawyer in 1938, producer David O. Selznick hired Menzies to work on Gone with the Wind. Selznick decreed that all aspects of the production's look, the sets, the costumes, the scenic design, the use of color, all of it was to be under Menzies, that Menzies had final word on the total look of the film. Because of this, Menzies was given a new title that was invented for him on Gone with the Wind, which was production designer. Okay. So a production designer is a person who is in charge of the film's overall look. Um, so an art director, for instance, is not in charge of, like, costuming, because the art department and the costume department are two different departments. Sure. The set design and construction is all under the art department, but, like, a production designer is in charge of props as well. Like, what do the props look like, and how are they placed in the scene? Uh, what do the costumes look like? What's the color palette of the movie? You know, what's the concept art? If there's special effects, what do they look like? How does that role interact with cinematographer and director? So, Just for example, with, like, props being placed in a certain spot or whatever... Mm -hmm. I always thought that that would be more of the director because they would be in charge of blocking, right? So imagine a scene set in someone's apartment. Yeah. Right? So there might be a prop or two in that scene that's, like, important to the plot. Uh, the character needs to pick up their cell phone and put on their shoes. But you can't just have a cell phone and shoes in a room and nothing else. Yeah, you would need more. And the director is not does not have the time to be like, okay, I want there to be a cloth hanging off of the table here and I want there to be dirty dishes piled up over here. There should be six of them. They should be this pattern, blah, 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 blah. Right? Like okay. that's way more than the director gives any kind of shit about. Um, so that's the production designer is pulling all of that together. So you have a props man who's either making those props or sourcing those props and bringing them to a production designer and saying, okay, is this what the glasses that they're holding and drinking out of should look like? Is this what, you know, whatever. And of course you're going to have anal directors who want also their approval on all that stuff, but a good director delegates and that's the production designer's job. And then you said with the use of color, mm -hmm. for example, with Gone with the Wind and the shot that I always think of with Gone with the Wind is when um, Atlanta is burning behind her and she's in shadow and mm -hmm. stuff. And that's a very dramatic use of color. So yes. would that be the cinematographer, or... In that case, it would be Menzies as the production designer, because he actually shot and directed the Burning of Atlanta sequence. Oh. Uh, because Gone with the Wind changed directors a few times, and uh, in the case of the Burning of Atlanta sequence, that had to be shot, like, in this moment when there was no director, so Menzies shot it. Okay, but, um, like, I mean, if Menzies wasn't shooting right. it, like, how so... would that have gone... The cinematographer's job is the cinematographic look of the film. So what is the film stock that we're shooting on? Because, you know, choosing your film stock is like choosing your paints, right? Like, do you paint on oil? Do you paint in watercolor? Oh, I see. Um, the cinematographer is also in charge of, you know, 
okay, what are the shots in terms of, like, angles and shot breakdown? Is this medium shot? Is this long shot? Is this wide shot? Obviously, the director also has some input into that as well, depending on how much control the director wants with that. Cinematographer also is working with the camera operators. You know, what lenses are we using? Are we going wide? Are we going narrow? You know, are we going with a long focal distance, a short focal distance? Are we doing telephoto? Everything to do with the camera, you know, and then also working with the gaffer on like the lighting, right? So the cinematographer is deciding how the film should be lit. And then the gaffer's job is to create lighting that fits the cinematographer's vision. And then the, you know, camera operator's job is to shoot mm -hmm. the film. Um, the director's job is to pull all of that together to be something cohesive. So the production designer's deciding on a color palette for the sets and the costumes and the props that all matches together, right? So that you don't have, like, dour sets with, like, vivid costumes and, like, gray props, right? Yeah. Um, and then your cinematographer has decided on, like, a lighting style with, like, the use of color in the lights, maybe, or that kind of thing, or the use of color in terms of what film stock we're using. And, you know, the director's job is to pull all that together and make all of that cohesive. So the director is going to be saying, okay, well, my overall vision for the film is this. And then everyone else's job is to go out and achieve that. And make that happen. Right. Okay. And if the director is good at what he's doing, that should be cohesive so that none of these departments are clashing with one another. So for his work on Gone with the Wind, um, particularly, as you just pointed out, in developing the use of color as a technique for dramatic mood, you know, because 1939, the use of Technicolor for film is still fairly new yeah. and it just sort of existed. Right. And Menzies was the guy who started to figure out like, how can we use color creatively to tell the story? Um, so because of that, he was awarded an honorary Academy award in 1940 because there wasn't really a category for what he had done. So, as I mentioned, Menzies had directed the Burning of Atlanta sequence in Gone with the Wind. He also directed the dream sequence in Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound, which was also produced by David O. Selznick. He directed that because Salvador Dali was supposed to direct that, and he did. But Dali turned in like a 20-minute sequence in what was supposed to be like five minutes of the movie. So Menzies was brought in to basically take that pick the best stuff from it, and shoot a new version that was, like, five minutes long. Sure. Because I'm sure that editing... Yes, Wouldn't it's have... a dream, but editing would not quite have worked. Yeah. So based on that experience, Menzies branched out into directing his own feature films, uh, including the H.G. Wells adaptation Things to Come for producer Alexander Korda, which okay. was, like, a big, expensive sci-fi movie. What year is that? Um, that would have been 1936. Okay. So, for Invaders from Mars, Menzies was hired to both direct and production design the film. Uh, basically, his job was to try and bring, like, an effective visual style to this very, like, rushed, cheap production. Uh, you know, kind of, okay, we need to bring in someone who can get us the most bang for our buck here. It makes sense. Menzies designed the sets with the sort of ultimate revelation of the story as being a nightmare in mind. Um, so creating sets that would subtly hint at that nightmarish quality. So some German expressionism? Perhaps. He also created the sets with an eye to depth, as Alperson announced that the film would be shot in 3D. Oh, so it's in color and in 3D, just like House of Wax. Right. To shoot the film, 
Alperson hired seven-time Academy Award-nominated cinematographer and also inventor John Seitz, who had wait, been... Wait, wait, wait. His name is John Seitz, and he's a cinematographer? Yeah, Seitz is spelled um, S-E-I-T-Z. Still, he's got you in his sights, Ben. He had been shooting <laughs> films in Hollywood since 1916, and the inventor part, he had a lot of patents on various photographic processes, including owning the patent on the bipack matte painting process. So the idea of where you, like, put a black mat in front of the film to shoot your actors and, like, the black mats in front of, like, where your background's going to go, and then you shoot, like, a painting with a black mat in front of where sure. the actors were, and then you put that together. He has the patent on that. Nice. Um, films that he shot include... Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in 1921, Prisoner of Zenda in 1922, The Magician in 1926, oh. Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, 1939, Sullivan's Travels, 1941, oh. This Gun for Hire, 1942, Double Indemnity, 1944, oh, damn. The Lost Weekend, 1945, The Great Gatsby, 1949, Sunset Boulevard, 1950, oh, shit. and George Pal's When Worlds Collide in 1951. Damn. Yeah, I'm very surprised that we are seeing, like, such big names and accomplished <laughs> people and, like, Academy Award winning and nominated people on this, like, rushed, scraping bottom of the barrel for a budget type of movie. Yeah, I think this is what happens when you have, like, 20th Century Fox money behind you. Or not really money, but, like, cachet behind sure. you, right? Yeah. Like, the studio wants this done cheap, so who can I hire who can make the most of it, you know, and I can hire these people because it's a studio picture. Um, so despite Seitz and Menzies meticulously planning the film for 3D, Menzies did, like, storyboards for the whole movie in charcoal. In the end, Alperson was unable to secure a 3D camera for rental in time to shoot the movie. Okay. Because they had to be shooting this by a particular date so that they could have it in theaters by a particular date. That makes sense. That's uh, that's unfortunate. I yeah. would have really liked to have seen their 3D vision. However, the film would still have a very unique cinematographic look thanks to the way that the movie's color photography was created. Okay. So, for one thing, this is the first color film we are seeing on the show that was filmed in the new single-strip Eastman color process from Kodak. Every time before now, including House of Wax, it's been three-strip. Right. Technicolor. Or, like, two-strip for, like, Cinecolor or Metrocolor or whatever back in the day. Yeah. So, Eastman Color was, like, the first major viable competitor to Technicolor's uh, domination of the color film world. You know, Technicolor did have competitors, but, like, Cinecolor was a two-tone process. And even when Cinecolor got rich enough to do Super Cinecolor... Like, that was three-tone, but, like, it's still not Technicolor, right? What you wanted, you know, if someone was going to come along to be a competitor, was someone figuring out a way to do color better. So, Eastman Color came out in 1950, and it was first used by the National Film Board of Canada for the feature-length documentary Royal Journey in 1951. So, Eastman Color uses a single monopack film negative instead of the Technicolor three-strip process. So, to explain how this works, um, I'll give a brief reminder of how Technicolor works, which is that Technicolor, you have three rolls of film, of black and white film. 
And behind the lens, you have a prism called a beam splitter that's basically dividing the light coming through the lens into, like, three-thirds. Uh, One-third going to, like, each film. And each of those films is sensitive to a different color, red, green, blue. You develop those films, and so you have a black-and-white film where it was green-sensitive, a black-and-white film where it was blue-sensitive, a black-and-white film that was red-sensitive. And then you apply dyes to those films so those colors will show up on each one, and then you print those three together to create your full-color image. Yeah. So Eastman Color works on a process that takes advantage of the normal way that film works. So normal, regular black-and-white film, all film, really, the way that that works is the film has an emulsion on it, which is a layer of gelatin mixed with silver halide crystals. Um, the silver halide crystals are what are light-sensitive. So silver halide, when exposed to light, um, undergoes a chemical process that changes it to metallic silver. So instead of a crystal, it's now like normal metal silver particles. Um, so what happens is if you just do like pure white light onto film, when the crystals turn to silver, you get exposed film, which is just going to be pure black, right? Because it's absorbed all that light because yeah. the silver is absorbing the light. When you have your normal image where you're just flashing the film past the lens at, you know, 24 frames a second, um, a little bit of light is getting in, but not all of it. And it's also being blocked by whatever's in the shot, right? Or reflected off what's ever in, in the shot. So the silver halide only turns to metallic silver in direct analog to how much light the film has absorbed. Mm -hmm. What that means is when we get a negative... Uh, when we, you develop a negative of film, you wash off the silver halide crystals that are left, the ones that didn't develop. Uh, so they don't develop where there isn't light, uh, which means that if you're in a dark room and you shot film, there's no light there. So your negative's going to look clear because you've washed off all the silver halide and there's nothing left. Yeah, because it didn't have anything to absorb, so... Right. Yeah. Exactly. So when you have just like a regular image, uh, if you picture like a film negative in your mind, the parts of the image that you would expect to be dark, like if I have dark hair, which I do, are clear because the Not silver... as much light is reflecting onto the silver for it to absorb. Right. And then you wash off the silver that didn't get absorbed. So you have this like clear light part, right? Yeah. Then the way that you create a positive from that that looks normal is you just, I mean, it's a, a, not quite this. You print it onto film again, and when you print it onto film, you're running light through it again. So you're basically filming the negative onto new film, and the light can't pass through the parts that are dark, where it was exposed, where the silver halide turned into metallic silver. So it reverses exactly. what's and black you get, and what's light. You got it, yes. And that's how you get a positive print. So, now that we have that basic... <laughs> uh, the simplified basic part of film. Yes, and, and for anyone who's a cinematographer or a film processor or developer out there, like, I am simplifying like a motherfucker. So, <laughs> so now that we've, we've done our refresher course, how Eastman Color works is there are three layers of emulsion on the single strip of film. And each layer of emulsion has a color dye within it. Cyan, magenta... And yellow. These color dyes then chemically form a bond 
with the silver halide crystals when the silver halide turns to metallic silver. So in the areas of the film that go dark on the negative, the dyes form around those areas in the exact same intensity as the silver is doing in relation to the light. So where there's more silver on the negative, there's more dye. So something that is white in color would become black on the film because all of the dyes are coming together, right? And that's going to give you black. Now, this is all on the negative. So when you go to positive, this is what happens. Cyan, magenta, and yellow are the negatives of red, green, and blue. So cyan filters out red light. Magenta filters out green light. Yellow filters out blue light. So when you shoot your positive and you're running light through the negative, what happens is that if you have something that's like a strong red object, well then on your negative, you'll have very little cyan dye because cyan filters out red, right? Um, when you shoot through that weak cyan dye, then you're going to have a strong resulting red image on your positive. Because it's the reverse. The other colors are strong. Right. And are filtering out those, their, their opposites. That's so right. Red is the only light wave yeah. that is able to move through. Right. So if you had like a very weak green in your image, there's going to be a lot of magenta dye in that area because the magenta dye filters green light. Same with blue and yellow. So when you have your positive, you've filtered out your three colors using cyan, magenta, and yellow. This is called subtractive color. So what you get then onto your positive is the correct red, green, and blue and light values. You're doing the exact same thing as you do when you develop black and white film, in other words, except in black and white film, it's the silver crystals. Well, here you still have the silver crystals and you have dye that, because it's chemically bonded to that, is doing the same job. In this way, then, you can have one strip of film that you develop that has all your color information, which means you're shooting the same amount of film that you would a black and white film. You're developing the same amount of film that you would a black and white film, as opposed to on three-strip Technicolor, where you're shooting and developing three times as much mm -hmm. film. And you also, because of the way Technicolor works, need three times as much light. Here, you don't need that, which means you can have way more natural lighting. It's just why the, probably the first film shot with this was a documentary. Um, so just to clarify, you, you have your negative with the color information. Mm -hmm. And then they're just turning that into a positive version. Right. Of, like filming it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they don't need to film that onto three strips. It's just onto yeah, that's right. the right thing. That's right. Because you basically had three layers of dye in the one film. Yeah. So then when you have your negative, all those dyes are there. And they're all present. Um, that And they have formed, you know, in proportion to the light that passed through. But what they're filming onto, mm -hmm. would that be like a normal, just the silver? Oh, I see, I see. So what you would print onto... You can have a variety of choices of what you want to print onto once you have your negative. Um, you can print onto Eastman color, for sure. But um, this film doesn't do that, and I'll talk about that in a second. Oh, okay, I'm jumping ahead, sorry. So the main reason Hollywood really started switching to Eastman color 
other than what I just described, like the obvious things that it's cheaper and easier, um, you know, just because something's cheaper and easier doesn't mean people are going to do it, right? If yeah. there's a company that has a real stranglehold in the industry like Technicolor did, you know, nobody wants to piss off Technicolor and break their contracts and stuff. But in 1953, we see Hollywood starting to switch to Eastman Color en masse. And why is that happening? Because in 1953, we start getting the first Cinemascope films. So roll your mind back to how I described Technicolor's working with the beam splitter and the three rolls. Yeah. The way that widescreen works is you have an anamorphic lens that's bending light when it passes through the lens to fit on a square bit of film, but you have a wide image, and then you project it through a reverse lens so that that square image becomes a wide image on the screen. Well, if you're bending the light, that's going to fuck up how it works with the beam splitter behind the lens. So anamorphic lenses are basically inherently incompatible with a Technicolor camera. Yeah. So you need a new color process that doesn't require that beam splitter. Um, so this is what you get. Eastman color. Uh, 1955 would be the last year that three-strip Technicolor was shot on as a negative format. But it would stick around as something to print to from your Eastman color negative. Uh, and eventually, even when they just started printing to Eastman color, the way that Technicolor survived as a company was becoming the premier processing company and lab to process your negatives to. So you would give them your Eastman color, they would develop it, process it, print it onto Technicolor, or eventually print it onto Eastman color, but they're still the ones doing all that processing for you. Okay. Um, so basically Kodak makes the film, Technicolor makes the prints. Okay. In reference to my earlier question of what are they printing the positive of Eastman onto, in the case of this film, it would be Technicolor film? Aha, but this film was cheap as fuck. So, <laughs> this film was shot on Eastman color, but it was printed to Super Cinecolor. And Super Cinecolor is the three-strip version of Cinecolor, which is the old two-strip competitor to Technicolor when you were too cheap to use Technicolor. Uh, That's scared... the red-green that yeah. we saw on, like, Dr. X. Um, scared to death, exactly. Oh, scared, scared to death, to death yeah, was yeah, Cinecolor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in Super Cinecolor, you have three strips. But the thing that is weird is that the way that Super Cinecolor works is that the three dyes used in Super Cinecolor are red, green, and blue. Uh, so it's an additive color format. So you're taking a subtractive color format and printing it to an additive color format. And what that ends up giving you is these very vivid dyes on the print. Uh, that don't fade, and uh, because Eastman color prints will fade, Technicolor prints won't. Subtractive color dyes end up like fading over time, additive ones do not. Um, so because this was shot on Eastman color but printed to Super Cinecolor, what that means is this film has a very unique color palette that you'll, I think, notice watching the movie. Yeah, if it's so vivid as you're describing. Yeah, and just the way the colors interact... The, the palette's just a little bit weird because Super Cinecolor isn't Technicolor, so its color palette was always a little bit, like, funky. <laughs> it's like when you get the off-brand um, Fruit Loops. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, so it, it tastes a little off. Yeah. So, that's how the film was shot. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, to talk about the cast a little bit. <laughs> right, we still have to cover that. So the film's lead is a child actor obviously. Uh, it's 12-year-old Jimmy Hunt, 
this is kind of his movie. Like he did the acting thing, and then went yeah, off he, into like normal life. Yeah, like he has a few other child actor roles, but this is certainly the biggest of them. And he didn't really grow up to be an actor. He's still alive today. He's eighty years old. Do you know what he did besides acting? Like, nope. He went he, off he, to be like an engineer he, or something? He went off to be a regular normal person who... <laughs> Had a normal life. Right. He didn't have the trials and tribulations of Hollywood. Well, you know, that wasn't recorded by for posterity because it was a normal life. Yeah. The role of scientist Dr. Patricia Blake is played by actress Helen Carter. Carter was a 23-year-old fashion model when she was signed to Universal Pictures in 1946. She appeared in 12 films for Universal and on loan to other studios, always as the love interest to the male lead. Invaders from Mars, her 13th film, would be the first time she was given a different kind of role that wasn't like the romantic lead. It would also be her final film as she retired at age 30 to marry her second husband, who she stayed with until his death in 1997. Uh, She passed away in 2000. Wow. Some familiar faces in the cast uh, include Milburn Stone, who we've previously seen in Black Friday, Captive Wild Woman, The Mad Ghoul, Jungle Woman, and The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. At this point, he is two years from his career-making role as Doc Adams on Gunsmoke. Uh, Also a familiar face is Robert Shane, who we just saw in The Neanderthal Man. Uh, He's here in a very small part. And then there's two folk in this movie who are in small parts but are very recognizable to, I would say, like, boomers uh, because of some future roles they will have. One is Barbara Billingsley. She's in a very small role in this movie. This is four years before she would become June Cleaver, the mom on Leave it to Beaver. Yeah. This is also the first film appearance of Richard Deacon, who would portray the neighbor Frank Rutherford on Leave It to Beaver, as well as many, many other film and television roles until his death in 1984. So Invaders from Mars premiered on April 9th, 1953. That's my mom's birthday. Neat. Though, um, wrong year. Uh, Critics were united in praise for the film's creativity, uh, unique look, and imagination. But they were also all united in saying that it was too scary for young children. (laughs) That's a sign of a great kids movie, guys. Well, it was also another thing that made me go, okay, maybe this is a horror movie then, if every single critic made a point of being like, this is too scary. For the film's release in the UK in early 1954, the British distributors demanded some changes. Notably, the dream ending was deemed unsatisfactory. We are not standing for it. (laughs) We are not satisfied. So a new ending was shot uh, for the British release, resolving the film's plot differently. And also another new scene was added for earlier in the movie that went over the history of UFO sightings in the United States uh, for the benefit of the UK audience. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. If you yourself want a recap of UFO sightings in the United States, you can hear that from our episode on The Thing from Another World. It's episode 154. Mainly, all of the UFOs happened in, like, 1949 to 1951, and you could say that it was a mix of either mass hysteria around perhaps seeing either a weather balloon or... uh, advanced type of technology that the United States was developing because of the Cold War. Secret spy planes. Secret spy planes. Um, 
Or you could think that maybe it is actually aliens who visited for a couple of years and then GTFO'd. Yeah, I mean, you can think whatever you like, but that doesn't make whatever you like true. <laughs> so although Invaders from Mars was released by 20th Century Fox, uh, the film was produced independently, and so the copyright on it has since lapsed. Um, the best DVD release is probably the one from Image Entertainment that was produced for the film's 50th anniversary. That might be a little hard to get hold of, though, since that was 2003. So it, I will also say that it is available on Amazon Prime Video. And we're also going to put it up on the YouTube playlist. Okay. Folks, if you do want to watch along, uh, I'm really looking forward to this movie now. Um, when I first heard the title, I wasn't too sure what to expect, but now I'm pretty stoked. <laughs> Um, you can find the YouTube video on our playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Invaders from Mars from 1953, directed by William Cameron Menzies. See you on the other side, everybody. And welcome back to Scream Scene. Sarah and Ben here to talk to you about Invaders from Mars. Full disclosure, it's many days after we recorded the intro and watched the movie. Life has been busy. We've been pretty busy lately. Uh, We are planning on moving. Well, we are moving. We are planning that move. And this week involved applying for the new place and... notifying the landlords of our intent to vacate and just there's just been a lot of stuff and we just haven't had the time to get back to this no sleep because our current building is fucking awful well they did an ongoing boiler screeching issue which uh we didn't want to record during yeah we had been complaining about it to the landlords for like two weeks as it steadily got worse Mm -hmm. uh so this is just kind of the camel broken back the straw that broke the camel's back yes right we're very tired (laughs) um so we're gonna try to do our best here for you guys today uh with talking about invaders from mars because it is a really cool movie to talk about what did you think of it ben i really liked it but i like it in the way that i like like wizards by ralph bakshi like i like it in the way that i like weird not necessarily good movies. Sure. What did you think, Sarah? It was neat. <laughs> I like Invaders from Mars. It's neat. <laughs> Gee whiz. Sarah, why don't you tell us about the story? Sure. So we follow a young boy named David McLean. No relation to Die Hard McLean. And he's like eight That's... years old. <laughs> Sorry, the way that you said <laughs> David McLean... No relation to Die Hard McLean makes it sound like Bruce Willis's character's <laughs> name is Die Hard McLean. Yeah. Which would make the title of those movies make more sense. So David's like eight years old, and he wakes up one morning at around 4 a.m. for some astronomy stuff, because he's a real nerd. Yeah. 
Uh, his dad, who is also a scientist and an engineer at um, a nearby government facility, is also pretty into astronomy, but mom makes them go back to bed. Yeah, because it's four in the morning. Yeah. The mom's name is Mary, the dad's name is George, but I'm going to be calling them mom and dad. <laughs> Later, David wakes up again in like the middle of the night. The sun isn't up, and he hears loud sounds outside. He goes to look, and he sees a UFO landing at the nearby sand pit. Gee whiz. <laughs> he wakes up his dad, uh, who is like, No, David, go back to bed, it's fine. But maybe I should investigate, because apparently he should report any weird things to work. Which makes you go like, well, what are you working on in that government facility, Dad? Well, it is the Cold War, yep. so I, you know, is it a Soviet spy plane? I understand the security precautions. So he tells Mom, I'll be back in the morning, mm -hmm. and Dad heads out to the sand pit. Morning arrives, and he's still not back, so Mom calls the cops. They arrive, and they go to investigate the sand pit, and we see them get swallowed within the sand. Mm -hmm. Mom and David are getting pretty worried, but then Dad comes home. But he's changed somehow. He's mean, irritable, he hits David at one point. Um, and David also notices that there seems to be a small wound at the back of the, the base of the skull. So David's like, this is weird. And even Mom is kind of yeah, weirded out. because, like, his original personality is like, I'm your best friend, Dad. And now it's like, kid... I'm your worst nightmare, yeah. Dad. Get out of here, kid, before I cuff you. <laughs> David, throughout the day, sees his neighbor, Kathy, disappear. So he goes to tell her mom, but then suddenly Kathy appears and is also acting very strangely. David sees that Kathy's house is on fire, and they realize someone set this deliberately because it's gasoline in the basement. And we get a very good creepy look from Kathy, who looks like that little girl in that meme where like there's a burning house in the background and she's like turned towards the camera with an evil smile. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what this is, basically. Yeah. Only she's straight on the camera. Yeah. So that house burns down. No one believes David as he tries to tell people that his dad is acting strangely, the cops came back and they were acting strangely, Kathy was acting strangely. So he decides, you know what, I'll, I'll go to the police. But the chief is also acting strangely. And these people who are quote-unquote acting strangely, they have kind of like a monotone voice, um, a deadpan face, and just are very short, and um, they clearly are, like, operating on, like, some kind of, like, known plan. Short-tempered, by the way, not, like, they didn't shrink. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. In this case, the chief, who David also notices has a wound at the base of his skull, um, orders David to be put in a cell <laughs> uh, until his parents can arrive and, to get him. <laughs> Um, now, there's a friendly desk cop who uh, is like, mm, this kid seems really scared and really shaken up, so I'll follow these orders, but I'm going to call the local doctor to come take a look at him. And this doctor is Dr. Blake, who is uh, the one lady in this movie. Yeah. My impression was that her job is child psychologist. Yes, definitely. Um, um, it, it wasn't 
super clear how much like medical knowledge she has so it was hard to tell like is she a physician mm-hmm. or is she like more of like a psychologist because she has like um anatomy knowledge so yeah I, you know yeah like, I, maybe she like specialized in child psychology when she was going to college yeah i think she's a child psychologist because that would make sense why the sergeant calls her and he says like you know you're used to dealing with this kind of stuff and she knows all the right things to kind of say to like get david's trust i think the fact that she also knows like some medical stuff is sort of the doctor equivalent of that 1950s thing where all scientists know all science sure (laughs) so as ben said dr blake manages to get david's trust and he tells her the whole story now she isn't really sure whether to believe this um, but she calls up a friend of hers, scientist Dr. Kelston, who uh, David has a relationship with. Dr. Kelston works at um, an astronomy observatory, and uh, David would go up to like use the really big telescope mm-hmm. instead of his like home teles- telescope. And Kelston says, "No, like David isn't one to like make up stories. Like this sounds pretty legit." Mom and Dad show up to take David home. And Dr. Blake comes up with a quick story of, like, no, he's suffering from maybe polio, so you legally have to keep him here with me. I, I'm I'm taking care of him. Yeah. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. Um, and the mom and dad are, like, pretty upset about this. They're, like, seeming pretty controlling. Hey, by the way, I forgot to mention, dad got mom into the sand pit. Yeah, while David's been going around trying to ring the alarm, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot to mention that. But yeah, so both your parents are weird now. Um, Dr. Blake takes David to see Dr. Kelston, and they talk about, yeah, you know, like, if there was a thing, like a UFO coming, it would probably come from Mars. And you know, Mars is really weird. I bet they can't even, like, breathe air, and they probably have mutants to do their bidding. (laughs) Yeah, Kelston starts, like, just spitballing out of nowhere some some like real like batman 66 style like i'm just making huge leaps of logic and he he's like oh yeah there are people who have theories that this completely wild thing is true um and the only reason this is all here is to exposit it because it all turns out to be true yeah (laughs) it's all true but through Dr. Kelston and his connections with the National Guard, uh, they get the army involved and they surround the sand pit with tanks. They also put out a lookout for the affected people, which by now also includes um, a general of uh, the local like army base. Yeah, I think the the thing about this town is it's clearly like a government town that like is servicing this nearby facility. So that's why, like, Kelston has, like, knows people he can call in the army and why there's the army, you know, just kind of right at hand to send a bunch of tanks. But it is kind of impressive in this movie that, like, once the general gets taken over, which you'd think would be like, oh, well, now you can't have the army on your side. You'd think that's why that's in the story. But instead, like, the general just disappears to go do mysterious things. And Kelston just calls, like, the colonel, like, his second command. He's like, hey, it's me, Kelston. Uh, this eight-year-old says there's Martians. And the colonel's like, well, I trust you, Kelston. So if you trust the kid, I trust the kid. There's Martians. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Everything happens quite quickly. Now, Kathy turns up dead. <laughs> yep. 
She uh, suffered like a brain aneurysm type of deal. Cerebral hemorrhage. Cerebral hemorrhage. And uh, Dr. Blake, over the phone, learns um, kind of a bit more details. Turns out the cerebral hemorrhage happened because of a device that was inserted at the base of the skull. And this device connects to um, almost like a radio frequency. And these people who are acting strangely with these wounds at the base of their skulls are no longer in control and are being basically mind-controlled by the Martians. The hemorrhage happened because Kathy was no longer of any use. Um, and we see that this is almost like a, a kill switch for agents that have the Martian needs to get rid of. Have outlived their usefulness, yeah. Yeah. It's like that thing in Suicide Squad where they all have a bomb in them. There is a conspiracy going on. Um, all of these strange remote-controlled people are off doing things. So we see that the two cops are off lighting a government building on fire, and as they are cornered, um, their kill switches go off, and so they are dead. We see this happen to a couple of people, and by now David's getting really concerned about his mom and dad. He's like, I don't want them to die. And Dr. Blake's like, don't worry, they'll be fine. (laughs) We do get to see a little bit of their role in the conspiracy. Mom and dad are... Bonnie and Clyde, it turns out, uh, they are trying to assassinate Kathy's dad at the nearby facility. Yeah, he's already had a really bad day. (laughs) Yeah, his daughter died, his house burned Burned down. down. He's like, I need work to take my mind off it, because toxic masculinity. This is Robert Shane, by the way, in a very small but recognizable role. (laughs) So this... (laughs) This assassination gets foiled because just as they are about to shoot with the uh, sniper rifle, um, the doc bends down. (laughs) Yeah, like pick up a (laughs) test tube or something. And mom and dad are captured and uh, sent for surgery to get this mind control device taken out. And David's really worried. Apparently the person who's going to do the surgery is really good, according to Dr. Blake, but he has to come from the town over. Will he get here in time? Will they survive the surgery? Oh no, mom and dad. Meanwhile, about 20 minutes of uh, stock footage of the army going to a sand pit happens. Yeah, they, they, this movie, we told you the budget. This movie does not have any money. um, An army of tanks money. So it's just like all newsreel stock footage of like tanks and, and so on, military shit, like moving from one place to another. I think like in America on like probably maneuvers. And then, like, once they're surrounding the thing, like, every time we see the tanks, it's cut to stock footage. And it's that great, like, our actors are over here in a shot with no tanks on it. And then, like, look off camera and point, there's the tanks, and then cut to tanks, and then cut back. It's, uh, it's a lot. There's a a lot. They use a lot of stock footage. They're getting their money out of that stock footage. But through the power of that stock footage, they have the sand pit surrounded. And they were trying to determine where, underground, the Martians are. And they developed what is basically a metal detector just to uh, sense where they are. Yeah, it's based on that radio frequency Sarah mentioned. Yeah. But just then, Dr. Blake and David are sucked underground. They are taken by green mutants over to the underground UFO. So these mutants are meant to be like... 
you know, seven, eight foot tall, big, tall guys. But they're basically wearing, like, fuzzy green onesies. Um, that with zippers up the back. With, with very visible zippers up the back. And, like, mittens that I think are meant to make them look like they have three fingers. Because they're kind of shaped like the Vulcan salute. Their onesies have, like, a cowl. So the only thing visible of their skin is their faces, which have been painted green. And then their eyes basically have, like... Sunglasses. Yeah, they're like um, those kind of wooden glasses with the slits that you see, like, people who live near the Arctic wear. But those have also been painted green and then kind of, like, stuck in their eyes. I think I'm, I think what they're wearing, like the furry onesies and the, the sunglasses, I think they're supposed to be like, oh, they have weird-looking eyes and they're kind of furry. Because in the script, they keep getting referred to as apes. Yeah. But it's definitely just some guys in some green onesies. <laughs> And according to Dr. Kelston's theories that we heard earlier, these mutants are not actually Martians. These are basically servant beings that the Martians have created to serve them. Yeah, they're like a, a race of human slaves who have been bred to be their servants and like mutanted into their current form. Yeah. So these green mutants take David and Dr. Blake down and they see... What what is basically like an alien head in a crystal ball. Um, it's like this glass sphere. There's a head in it, and there's like tentacles coming off of it. It's like Krang from from Ninja Turtles. I just realized it's like Krang from Ninja Turtles, but green and very tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's not like a brain, but same. You know, picture Krang, make him green, make him smooth. There you go. Now. Dr. Blake is going to get this mind control device put into the base of her skull. And David is frantically trying to help her. He's banging on the crystal ball. And this Martian isn't communicating at all. It's almost like he's mute and is communicating through, like, the radio frequencies to the mutants. And um, a an army guy who uh, we saw got, like, sucked into the, the sand pit earlier, he takes David away to, for some reason... Right. We don't know why. To a different room. And this is the climax here. So, with our um, young boy and one girl in danger, um, the army storms through the tunnels. They were able to identify where the Martians were thanks to the Martians appearing when they took Dr. Blake and David in the first place. Yeah. Um, now, it's a little bit of a maze down here because the mutants are using this ray gun to carve tunnels underground and, like, create walls where they didn't used to be and then to make pathways where there were none before. Right, which is why it's been so hard to track the Martians because their UFOs actually been, like, moving through these tunnels underground. But the army is coming in, storming these tunnels, and they get to the UFO. Um, they, we, we do see a mutant get, like, peppered with bullets, but he gets up, and so they pepper him again, and then they go over him and, and leave that tunnel, and he gets up, but it's all the same shots, it's all the same, like, framing, the same tunnels over and over again, the same people running back and forth. Yeah, this, this climax, like, the, the stuff earlier with the stock footage with the tanks, it's like, okay, I can understand you don't have money for tanks 
And there's a lot of it, and it's a little bit overdone, and you can tell that's kind of like, oh, we're filling time here. Yeah. But this climax, I mean, on paper, I don't think this is a bad climax. But what makes it a bit of a chore to watch is, as Sarah said, like, it's the army running through these tunnels chasing after these mutants and having these firefights as the mutants make new tunnels and blah, blah, blah. Also, for various reasons, the army ends up, like, running back and forth from the tunnel they used to get into the UFO and back and forth a few times. But there's only, like, one shot of the mutants running through the tunnels, one shot of the army running through the tunnels, one shot of the army shooting guns, one shot of the mutant falling over dead, one shot of it getting up again, and, like, one shot of them making new tunnels with the ray gun. And every... So every time one of those events happens in whatever order, it's just that shot again. And I have never seen a movie use its own footage from the same scene as stock footage in the movie itself so much as this movie. Like, this is a 10-minute climax that is extended out to, I think, about half an hour. Yeah. With the use of this footage over and over again to make it seem like there's way more than just, like, maybe five soldiers and two mutants. Yeah, it's it's difficult to get through. But the army makes it to the UFO. They save Dr. Blake just in time before the mind control device gets put into her skull. And they bring out all the explosives, all the dynamite, and they're ready to blow up the UFO. They set it for six minutes, because really need to drag time out, but also because they still need to find David. David is being taken by the mind-controlled soldier through the tunnels, and he's like, help, help! And that gets repeated many, many times. Eventually, uh, <laughs> one soldier guy takes a grenade and throws it at two mutants. Now this causes a little bit of a tunnel collapse, um, which knocks out the mind-controlled soldier who's been taking David around, but this also gets the army a ray gun to start making their own tunnel so they can finally get back to their original ladder, start get, getting everyone out because, hey, this place is going to blow. So they get up and out. Suddenly the UFO is rising above the sand and they're like, shit, run, because it's going to blow. And now everyone's running. During this running, um, we get a focus on David's face green light on him, and we get a, a quick little recap of everything that's happened in this movie. And I think this is supposed to be the dream sequence that uh, you alluded to in the context setting? Well, so, the whole movie's a dream sequence. Yeah, but it seemed like this particular, like, montage thing is, well, uh... I think this montage is supposed to be some way of, like, kind of signaling that David is, like, coming back into consciousness, because the clips we see are, like, I think in roughly reverse chronological order, as if he's kind of like coming back up through the layers of the dream again into consciousness. Yeah, some of the footage is reversed, um, and it's all like kind of weird shit going on, but Ben kind of gave it away, um, because as the explosion hits, um, David wakes up. He's back in bed, um, there's a thunderstorm outside, and he rushes into his parents' rooms. Mom! Dad! You're here! I thought you were going for surgery! And they're like, oh, David, like, we're fine. We're here. David, go back to bed. It's all okay. So they tuck him in, they head back to bed, and 
David still hears the thunderstorm outside, and he looks, and is that an, a UFO landing? <gasps> the end. Yep. So it's like, you know, the ending's very like, it was a dream. Or, or was, was it? it? Yeah, was it a premonition? You know, that kind of thing. So there's there's actually a lot I have to say about this movie, and it's hard to know from what angle to come at it first. Um, what do you want to talk about first? Well, I, I think this is a weird movie. Definitely has that nightmarish vibe to it. You get the nightmarish German expressionist vibe almost immediately because the little pathway from David's house to the sand pit looks exactly like a path with weird trees that you see in Caligari. Yes. Um, almost like exactly. Yeah. Um, I would not be surprised if they like had a shot of Caligari and made this set look exactly like it because of the way that the trees are craggy, the way that the pathway leads up and the fence is kind of broken down. Um, and I thought it was kind of neat how, like, it was very sudden, but also very quiet the, when people would disappear. Yes, yeah. The way that there's a lot of cool sound effects with the aliens. So, like, when people get sucked into the sand, we see, like, the sand, and we see, like, it start to, like, sort of, like, as if it was, like, um... Like a, a pit was a opening sinkhole. In. Yeah. Yeah. Opening underneath. We yeah. see the sand start to like go down and there's this like oh kind of sound. Um which you'd think is the score, but eventually it's revealed that's diegetic because people it'll start happening and people go, What's that sound? Um and it reminded me a lot actually of two thousand one a space odyssey. The yeah, the same kind of choral sound. Yeah, that Kubrick uses for the monolith when it's in an area. Um, but yeah, the way people fall into these holes is like one second they're there and one second they're not. Yeah. And there's no scream. They just kind of go, what? Yeah. The most, um, extreme reaction we get is one of the cops, um, right before he falls, he throws up his hands and has a scared look on his face. I think, uh, the other big reaction is from the, uh, so the mind controlled soldier guy that Sarah mentioned, his original role is he's like the right-hand man of the colonel who's in charge of the army. And I think at one point, the way he gets kidnapped is at one point he's like, I'm going to go investigate this shit myself. And he's got his, like, army rifle, like his, his you know, M11. And as he's getting sucked in, he's, like, firing the rifle off into the, into the hole. And that doesn't help him. He gets sucked in anyways. Yeah. Yeah, the, the German expressionism here, like, I feel like it's sort of a make lemonade out of lemons situation. Sure. Because this movie is very cheap. Um, and outside of like David's house, which looks like a house, the sets in this movie are very sparse. They're very like theatrical, you know, they're very much like, you know, if you went to go see a play and they were representing a room by having like a door frame and like a clock hanging and, like, a chair, right? Like, the, the police station set is this long hallway in from these doors to the desk sergeant, and the, the room the desk sergeant is in is almost like this void with the, the, the desk and then way huge up high above the desk sergeant, a clock hanging on the wall. Yeah, and everything is white. Yeah, and then, like, the chief's office is a door, like, off to the left, and it just looks like things are, like, 
hanging off of nothing. And the shots and the sets and all of it is very German Expressionist in style. Like the whole thing with the clock, for instance, where there's the only time we really see it is like a shot that's like at the ground level, looking up at the desk sergeant, past him to this big clock hanging up like what realistically would be like a, I don't know, 30 foot high ceiling or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, it ends up working once you realize this is a nightmare, right? Once Once it's revealed that this was all a dream, a lot of the weirdness in this movie starts to make, like, retroactive sense. But also it's like, oh, they didn't really have money to build a set. So it's just, like, these few pieces that are, like, evocative of the idea of a police station. It makes it very surreal. Mm -hmm. It really reminded me of those very cheap episodes of Star Trek near the end of, um, the third season of original series. Yeah, and, and Batman did that, too. Near the end of its third season. Yeah. Yeah, where just things took place in a void. Yeah. Just a room with a black floor and some curtains. Yeah. So it's it's really cool, like, especially knowing that the cinematographer and director, like, had kind of their big breakthroughs in the 1920s, it means that it's probably not accidental. Like, we're we're probably able to say they're doing German Expressionism on purpose. Yeah. But it's clear that they're doing it as a way to work with what they got budget-wise. I think also the way that the story is told, Mm -hmm. it's very simplistic. Mm -hmm. It's very also, like, not really logical. Like, oh, yeah, um, you believe an eight-year-old? Yeah, I'll, I'll call up the army for this sandpit without any kind of evidence. Or any generals or anyone further up the chain of command being like, um, excuse me, what? You he, want how many tanks? For what reason? They have a direct line to the Pentagon. Yeah, and the it, Pentagon's like, sounds good to me. It's a very, like, like a child's understanding of the way the military works. Yeah, and like... They know that, like, oh, this person, like a colonel, would be below a general, and if the general's getting, like zombified or whatever the fuck, um, then we're in trouble. But, oh, thank God, the colonel can get through to, to the president and, yeah. you know, figure this out. Same thing with, like, how the cops are depicted, where the police in this movie are, like, both, like, something that you go to for safety, but also are kind of menacing, mm-hmm. right? Where it has that dichotomy. Yeah, once you realize this is all something that David's making up in his head, those leaps of logic make sense. Like, the thing where, like, Kelston knows exactly how life on Mars works despite having no evidence because he's a scientist and he's a smart guy, so he would know these things. Yeah. Right. And his theories, which he says, like, some people theorize, yeah. all turn out to be true. Yeah. And they're things that you could not in any way theorize based on available data about Mars. It's it's like the the chain of thought is like, well, There's not a lot of water or oxygen on Mars, so it's probably hard to survive there. So they probably live in, like, space stations in orbit. And they probably have trouble with reproduction because their species is probably dying. So they probably made this race of human mutant slaves in order to do their bidding. And it's like, wow, dude, like, that's some (laughs) QAnon-level, like, bullshit. (laughs) It kept reminding me of um, those... uh quote-unquote documentaries on History Channel. Right, yeah, about that are like, aliens. Yeah, that always begin, like, right at the beginning of the show, like, now, if aliens 
did build the pyramids, here's how they did it. Right. And then they spend the rest of the hour or whatever saying, here's how aliens built the pyramids. Right. But if you miss that, like, one little, like, throwaway line at the beginning, then you would have no clue. Speaking of, like, a kid's understanding of the world and this movie just kind of going with that and that simplistic view, this really made me think of, like, how a kid may understand the Cold War. Mm. Because their dad... So dad works at the facility. He does something. There is an atomic-powered rocket, but it's never made clear if that's what the aliens are going after or, like, or what. There is, like, some sabotage going on with the uh, conspiracy and blowing up some government buildings, so maybe it's after that, but there's no, like monologue from the Martian saying, here's my plan, you know? Yeah, I think we get a scene where Kelston basically says, like, oh, well, if the aliens live in space stations out in space and we're working on how to make atomic rockets to go into space, they must think we're a threat and that's why they're here. But again, it's just more of Kelston's, like, making shit up, essentially. And it's like a very simplistic understanding of the arms race and the yes. space race yes and like how much distance there are between planets too because it's like oh yeah the rockets that earth is going to shoot up into the space will endanger the space stations that martians have when it's like no they won't you yeah. know this would be a movie I, I think is about the cold war just replace martians with russians oh yeah and i mean the the thing that struck me about this movie with the cold war stuff is like this especially the early part of the movie that's most of the early part of the movie before the army gets to the sand pit is about this really, I think evocative fear uh, that you have when you're a kid, Mm -hmm. the, the kind of helplessness that you have when you're a kid, because you're entirely dependent on the adults around you being competent and trusting you. And there's not a lot of those going around Mm-hmm. And, like, so there's nothing David can do on his own to stop a Martian invasion. So he either has to convince an adult to help him. And most of them are like, ah, David, that's some silly nonsense. You're kids and your imaginations. Or not even willing to listen to him. Right. Or they've already been mind controlled. They've already got to you. It's this conspiracy story at the start. But it's a conspiracy story, like, explicitly for kids. That's based around a very... Um, childhood fear Um, because like the thing I'm really interested in here is the number of movies that we have seen. I think we're up to three now where a central plot element is normal people from town being taken and then turned into like mind controlled alien stooges. We had that in man from planet X We had it in, it came from outer space, and we've had it here now. And the thing is, like, you know, I live in 2020, so I can see the future. And I know that one of the biggest sci-fi Cold War allegory movies of the 1950s that's coming up is going to be Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is about aliens taking people and mind-controlling them and turning them into pod people. So that's like a recurrent theme through all of these, this idea that you don't know who to trust. The people around you might be working for some power that's against the United States. They might even be people you know. So it's really easy to see where that's, like, the Red Scare. That's, oh, like, who knows who got brainwashed 
during World War II when they were our allies into being like communist sympathizers and now they're all over the place and we have to root them out otherwise they're going to upend America from the inside right that was the whole Red Scare deal and we're seeing it like really iterated on in these alien invasion movies yeah, and it's really interesting to basically see this from a kid's point of view. Yeah. Who wouldn't understand what communism is beyond, like, well, mom and dad said said it's bad. Yeah, which is why, like, the Martians don't really have any kind of, like, plan or ideology or personality. Like, they're just the bad guys. Yeah. Right? And spooky. I will say that while the mutants are very silly looking, yes. um, the main Martian design is pretty cool. Yeah, it's, uh, there's close-ups on what I think is a little person's face that is done up as, um, almost like a green gold, Mm -hmm. and, uh, with, like, the kind of big head that you think, kind of like, uh, the face of, like, the big floating head in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's, it's the, it's the Oz head with tentacles. Yeah, and in, like, this little crystal sphere. Yeah. And he gets carried around by the mutants, so it's really interesting how, like, this, like, seemingly, at least to David, all-powerful being yeah. um, relies on these servants to do things and, like, it won't even, like, communicate to him, David. Yeah, the, the impression you really get is this idea, um, which is also an idea in, like, War of the Worlds, the novel, of the idea of, like, Martians as beings that have, like, evolved to be pure intellect, right? So it's just like a head in a jar with, like, very atrophied limbs that, like, communicates telepathically with everyone, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's cool. Some other cool stuff about this movie. Well, I really like the character of Dr. Patricia Blake overall. Yeah, it's a shame that she retires after this. Yeah, she's really good in this, for one thing. Um, she's a total babe, but the movie doesn't... I think because it's from a kid's point of view, the movie doesn't have, like, a romantic angle in it. Like, Dr. Blake and Dr. Kelston are friends, and, like, you know, when one of them finds out the other's alive at the end of the movie, they, like, embrace and hug. But there isn't any kissing, there isn't any them falling in love throughout the movie, there isn't a romantic subplot here. Yeah. You know? Because, Um, like, an eight-year-old wouldn't be really thinking about seeing two adults and they say that they're friends, he's like, oh, they're friends. Yeah, well, and also, like, you know, because this movie's not just from the point of view of an eight-year-old, but it was very much intended, like, the writer said he wrote the movie from that point of view because that's the intended audience, right? So this is meant as a kid's movie. It's a kid's movie with a super high body count and, like, a lot of violence and a lot of, like, really weird, dark, disturbing imagery because it's a horror movie for kids, which is something we don't get anymore because we don't trust children to be afraid, but it's for kids. And, you know, the stereotype of like the eight year old to 12 year old boy is, you know, once a couple characters start kissing on screen, it's like, Oh, the mushy stuff. And like, they look away and it's like, ah, tell me when it's over cooties. Right. So like, of course there's none of that in this movie because it's for eight year old boys. Yeah. Now, I will say, Dr. Blake, when she gets kidnapped by the mutants and stuff, um, her doctor's uniform gets ripped at the shoulder, but it's not like, you know, a a sexy sexy rip or whatever. It's like, it's a rip at her shoulder. The camera doesn't linger on it in any sense. 
in any way, and it just is kind of to show that she's been through some shit. Yeah, she gets put on this, like, glass table uh, face down as the thing is going to get drilled into the base of her spine. And there's a shot where we're looking up through the glass table at her, and, like, that shot could also have been really super male gazy, um, but it doesn't come across that way. Now, because um, the actress, Helen Carter, is as I said earlier, like, very attractive, like, that's an element there, like, if you if you kind of want to check her out, like, okay, her dress is kind of ripped and stuff, whatever. But the camera isn't, as you said, lingering on it. The movie's not making a point of it. Yeah. And I, I really like just that she is the first person who believes David, that she's, like, the first competent adult we meet, because even the nice adults David meets up to that point are then incompetent. Right? Because that's how he's still in danger. Um, so she's, like, a really nice character. I, I really liked her. I I also really liked her. And, you know, feel free to say I'm going out on a limb here. But I think as much as we've talked about this movie being, like, a kid's understanding of the Cold War and the Red Scare and everything, um, I think you could also point to this as being almost an allegory for when a kid is suffering abuse of some kind by their parents and no one's really believing them right um so they have no power and then the person who does believe them and gives them power is a doctor right is the the child therapist yeah not the cops Mm -hmm. like they might be a conduit to get you to the psychologist or the doctor or or whoever but it's the psychologist It's, it's the physician who is able to get you out of that situation and get you help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's not out on a limb at all. Like, David's behavior, like, so, I mean, ordinarily his parents are, like, super great, right? Like, mom's really nice, and, you know, she might make you go to bed early or whatever, but, like, she's great, she'll make you breakfast. And, like, dad's just your buddy who's just as excited to, like, check out that meteor as you are. But once they're, like, mind-controlled, like, they're not just, like, We must go to the place to do the thing now, David. Like, they're jerks. They're very cold. And what made me start thinking about this is the way that the scene where Dad cuffs David. Mm -hmm. And, um, like, the mom comes in and she can tell that something has just happened. And Mm -hmm. she does a roundabout way of trying to get David out of that situation of like, hey, why don't you go upstairs and get dressed? I mm. I want to take you shopping today or something to get him out of the room and try to protect him. Yeah. Um, and it's clear that, like, she knows that, A, that just happened, and B, that's never happened before. Yeah, absolutely. And that, like, she's also now at this point so afraid of her husband because of this sudden change in him that she can't be like, George, like, what's gotten into you? Like, what are you thinking? Instead, it's like... Shut up, Mary. Yeah. Instead, it's like, oh, hi, George. I've got your tea ready. Uh, David, why don't you go somewhere else? But then, like, once mom is mind-controlled, too, the other thing I think of... Like, I wasn't really thinking about this watching the movie, but, like, I think you're totally on the money with this. Because, like, mom, when she comes to, like, pick David up from the police station, you know, and the dad's there, whatever. She's like lying to the cops and then later lying to Dr. Blake, you know, about why David is acting this way, being so upset. 
And the, like, tone of the lies and the way they're lying, you know, has that same tone as, like, you know, when you talk to, like, some kid whose parents are abusive and they're like, oh, he's just imagining things. Like, he fell down the stairs. You know, like, that yeah. kind of stuff, that kind of thing. He has an overactive imagination. Um, he's a real troublemaker. Yeah. Um, basically, like, gaslighting the kid and misconstruing the situation to the adults who are suspicious. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the fact that, like, no one really believes him. Like, at one point, David runs to um, a guest attendant that he knows. And he's like, yo, my dad is, like, fucked up. And the guest attendant's like, oh, David, like, let me call your parents to come pick you up. Yeah. Not even, like, listening to these concerns. Mm -hmm. And, like, the first impulse is to call the people David's scared of. Yeah. And that is very common because, like, abusers of any variety groom their victim, but also groom the people around them to believe that they are just fine. Yeah, you often hear this, like, rhetoric around abusive people, whether they're abusive parents or abusive boyfriends or whatever, um, where they'll turn to that person's friends and been like, how could you not have known you know, and if you did know then, like, why didn't you say anything? Like, you're complicit. You're just as guilty as them by, like, being associated. And that ignores the fact that, like, the way that abusive people are able to do that, whether to start it in the first place or keep going it, is because they have personalities, versions of themselves that are charismatic and magnetic and can put on a good face, right? So, like, you know, maybe you're abusing your girlfriend or your son or whatever, but when you're at the bar with your friends, you're not, like, also being a massive dick to them and cuffing them in the face and shit. You're a fun guy to hang around. And so, like, it's very easy for people to not see the monster inside people. Yeah. So that was a, a thing I, I got in here as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Sarah. I think that's that's a really good look. I think, you know, that's also speaks to the fact that so David is already friends with Dr. Kelston, right? So this is this adult man that he's already got a friendship with. And that's kind of like leads to this situation where the people on his side are Dr. Kelston and Dr. Blake. So they're kind of forming this like surrogate family unit, yeah. right? These are his like replacement parents basically. And that's a really common thing that you see with like kids who can't, form those relationships with their actual parents. And that replacement is made even more clear in uh, the British ending of this movie. Oh, yeah. We completely forgot to mention. Yeah, we still haven't (laughs) talked about the British ending, so I guess I'll talk about that now. Yeah. So the British version of this movie has two main changes. One is that when they go to the observatory to talk to Dr. Kelson, um, you know, to learn about mutants... Um, Kelston gives a bunch of exposition about UFOs, what they are and how they've been sighted and how they're actually real things because we have all these sightings. And then the ending, we get to the point where the UFO is going to blow up and everybody's like running away from the scene. And instead of going into this like footage from throughout the movie, rewinding itself thing, everybody just runs away. The UFO blows up and we cut to... Like what is clearly a different set several months later with these characters with different lighting and like a different, the film stock is different too because the way it's handling the color is different. 
David's there, and Blake and Kelsner are kind of embracing him, and they're like, see, David, your parents are going to be just fine now that the control unit is destroyed. Like, now we have, all we have to do is get the thing out of their neck, and that's going to be fine, because there's no, like, time sensitivity on it anymore. They're just good. And David's like, okay, and then we get the shot of him sleeping. We cut to Blake and Kelston in his house, looking in on him as if they were his parents, being like, ah, see, he's all asleep. He's going to be just fine. And closing the door. So And it's weird. It's weird, but it's like, it's clearly like, oh, they could get those three actors back. And David's voice is deeper. Yes. (laughs) Really funny. Because like, he's like... 11 when they shoot it and he's 12 when they do these reshoots right so yeah he he he's 11 playing eight right it's like mommy mommy gee whiz gosh dad and then in the british ending it's kind of more like oh do you think mom and dad are gonna be okay (laughs) it's like (laughs) hi david um yeah and so in the british ending it's not all a dreamy meme meme or was it it's this is a thing that happened yeah yeah and like Kelston and Blake also really feel like the way that young kids, especially like only children and people like that, make friends with their teachers. Yeah. And I think that's a big reason why, you know, if we come back to this idea that the movie is reflecting a kid's view of the world, right? Why is Dr. Blake a woman? Well, it's because like, you know, A, she's a surrogate mother figure and she's supposed to be you know, she's in a maternal role, even if she wasn't a surrogate mom, because she's taking care of David through the movie. So, like, okay, that's a feminine trait, according to, you know, 1950s American society. Um, but also, like, you know, okay, why does he imagine this figure as, like, a, a intellectual professional? I think it's because kids, when you're younger, are much more accepting of women in roles of authority and expertise Because your teachers are women when you're a kid in elementary school. Like, most elementary school teachers even today are women, but certainly in the 1950s, school teacher was a woman's role. So it makes sense in that way. Like, if David was an adult character, if this was an adult character going around with these conspiracies and like, oh, I can't trust anyone, the scientist who ends up being on his side probably wouldn't be a woman unless, of course, she's his romantic interest. Yeah, Yeah, I thought um, it was really cool how Dr. Blake, like, she is treated as an equal by the military men. Yeah, yeah, she's never... And she's just, like, this town's doctor or child psychologist. Like, she has no military standing. Like, why would she be allowed to go and also look at the uh, aneurysm results of Kathy, you know? Yeah, they, they absolutely treat her as, like, equal to Dr. Kelston, like, okay, she's the town psychologist or whatever, child therapist, etc. cetera. Uh, and he's like the astronomer. So like neither of those are like, hey, we need to let you into this like ongoing military operation, but they do let them in and they don't treat one any different from the other. There's nobody in the movie who says something like, a lady doctor, what'll they think of next? Or something like that. Like it's never brought to attention. The one thing that pigeonholes Dr. Blake into a traditional... 50s woman's role in a sci-fi horror movie is she becomes the damsel who needs to get saved at the end. Yeah. I thought you were going to say the cone bra. Oh, sure. Yes. Her outfit in the movie that Sarah mentioned earlier, it's like a white dress that kind of has a a smock smock appearance, but it's belted at the waist. And then, yeah, she's wearing definitely a cone bra. And so, like, 
to be honest, like when she comes into the movie, like she comes in tits first. Like she, it's like <laughs> just because of the way that bra is shaped. Yes, like it is ridiculous. Like she's gonna poke someone's eye out. Yeah, absolutely. You wanted to talk about the color. Yeah. So I mentioned the color in the in the context setting uh, in some detail. So I wanted to talk about like what I thought of it having seen it. This movie has a really bizarre color palette um, because. I mean, red and greens are both really prominent. Um, the aliens are all green. Green lights are all over the place. Um, the ray gun that makes tunnels is like an infrared gun. So it's like melting the the stone away is what it's supposed to be doing. Like, And so it's very red, right? And the, the effects around it are very red. So, yeah, the color palette. It's somehow both vivid... And murky at the same time. I think the murkiness or the blandness comes from the mise-en-scene. Like, I'm thinking of the um, police station being, like, all white. But the other thing about shots like the police station or um, the one doctor who they try to assassinate's lab, which is the same set redressed, is you can see over and over again that this was meant to be a 3D movie because there's so many shots that are done in depth. Like, that's the reason why the police station has a ludicrously long hallway is because it was meant to be seen in 3D, right? And a lot of other things in the movie make more sense when you re remember this was meant to be in 3D. Um, I don't know how they were going to deal with the stock footage. That's a whole other thing. Um, Film the footage? Maybe. With the 3D camera? Maybe. What you see a lot of, like, especially in scenes at night, um, I'm thinking of some of the early scenes, you know, at the house when he's getting out of bed, some of the scenes towards the end, is, like, someone will be lit in the foreground, and whatever their colors are, like, if there's a blue light on them or whatever, that blue will be, like, really vivid, but then it's almost like they look, like, cut out against the backgrounds, because then the backgrounds that are less lit are not only darker, but, like, the colors, like, are murky and kind of blend together, and it really, like, creates this really weird look to this movie that, you know, is the result of doing this monopack color that they're shooting on, and then you get a negative out of that, and then printing to a tripack color format. It's giving them this really bizarre look. Like, this movie looks really weird, and, I mean, it ends up, working again because of the nightmare thing. Yeah, the only non-nightmare scenes we get are at night. Right. And indoors. Yes. So it's, like, limited. So it really means that this weird effect and weird color is just in the dream. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that they aren't purposely doing that. It's not like a Wizard of Oz thing. Yeah. But it ends up kind of helping the movie's effect. The movie's aesthetic ends up going with the story. Which I think means that the aesthetic was successful. Yeah, Whenever absolutely. Whenever you have something that pairs together like that, uh, I think that's a success. I really like this movie. It's not better than War of the Worlds. No. Like, it's... it's War of the Worlds is a much more of a movie. Like, like I mean that in a way that, like... <laughs> Like, because of how much stock footage in he is in here, and how they use their own footage as stock footage to yeah, like, like, draw things out, and as if they're like trying to build tension at the end, but it's just like I've seen this shot 
so many times. Yeah, they... I don't need to see it again. The climax ends up being weaker than it wants to be, um, because even though, like I said earlier, like, I think on paper this climax works. Like, in the script, it's probably great. But, like, yeah, they are, like, doing the, like, cut between things really quickly, back and forth thing as the countdown's going down, like just like you'd kind of expect a movie like this to do, but because it's like the same six shots just kind of repeated over and over in different orders, instead of feeling like, oh, tense, it's like, oh, yeah, we get it. Blow up already, please. You yeah. know, because the, the fact that they're doing it just to drag the movie out becomes blatantly apparent. So the climax is weak, and that kind of sinks. It, it means that instead of ending the movie on a high note, you're kind of like really ready for the movie to be done. Yeah. By the end of it. The one thing I would give it over War of the Worlds is that War of the Worlds, the, the movie that is, from 1953, has like a really laid on thick Christian ideology. And like, this, that's not here Yeah, and that's not here at all. Like, there's no ideology really in this movie. No. Um, yeah, and that can make War of the Worlds like an uncomfortable watch for people who aren't like strongly Christian. Um, but in every other case, War of the Worlds is a superior movie. <laughs> um so, like, that's why at the start of all this I said this was, like, a weird, not really good movie, right? Like, this is one of those movies that, you know, the closest thing I can think of is Ralph Bakshi's Wizards, where it's not really a good movie, but there's so much, like, fascinating weirdness in it that it is a rewarding watch, and it sticks with you. Like, I'll probably remember this movie for a really long time. And going through, like, the IMDb reviews and everything said on the internet about this movie, like, it's clear that it's stuck with, like, boomers for a really long time. And the impression I kind of get, you know, both these movies were in theaters, obviously. War of the Worlds is the movie that your mom and dad took you to a theater to go see, and you all went to go see it because it was a big event. Invaders from Mars is, like, the movie that you, like, snuck out of bed after bedtime, after mom and dad went to bed, to sneak downstairs to turn on the TV and you're sitting like an inch away from the screen because you have like the volume up like one notch to watch like after bedtime and it's fucking weird and you're all alone in the house in the dark and you're also on edge because mom and dad could catch you at any moment and you're seeing this like bizarre nightmare movie and then you go immediately to bed after watching it and so it's like how much of that movie did I dream and it just sticks with you the rest of your life right? <laughs> Also, in terms of this being an effective horror movie, like... Kathy is creepy as fuck. Kathy's creepy. I don't think, like, from an adult perspective, uh, from the perspective of, like, a 30-year-old, this isn't much of a horror movie. It's definitely a sci-fi invasion movie, and it kind of feels like if you took out all the stuff that's dragging the movie out, like, it would be a good episode of The Twilight Zone. Absolutely. Um, but there's far too many, like, silly kind of elements to it like the stuff that you know the aliens look silly and the plot's a little ridiculous and all this stuff unintentionally silly right to be clear but if you're a kid you know you would gloss over all of that stuff right and i think you know a movie would this movie would definitely be scary for kids so i think it is an effective horror movie yeah and even from an adult perspective this movie got a yelp out of sarah when dr blake and david got pulled down into the hole because it's a mid shot like from the waists up and they just suddenly go whoop out of frame going down yeah and sarah went ah and i was like oh interesting because i've been like <laughs> paying attention as we go through these movies to like 
what are the first movies that actually get like uh, reactions yelp. out of us? Yelps or screams or whatever, right? Sure. So I definitely noticed that. And then it botched the ending. Yeah. Let's rank this. Sure. I completely agree that this is a horror movie for children. Mm-hmm. So I went looked at our other horror movie for children, which is The Curse of the Cat People, 1944, currently ranked at 81. Um, if people want to listen to that episode, because I think it might inform how we approach this episode, that's episode 115. And I was torn because mm. I think Curse of the Cat People really works as a horror movie for children. But as far as, like, explicitly scary, mm-hmm. even for a child, I think Invaders from Mars is more explicitly scary. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head with my difficulty with this movie in that I think this is a better horror movie than Curse of the Cat People. Like, Curse of the Cat People is almost, like, elegiac for large stretches of it and then gets yeah. kind of scarier towards the end. Yeah. It has that same fear of, like, I can't trust any of the adults. But, like, this is fucked up from Jump Street, right? Like, (laughs) because even before we're getting, like, alien action, we have the weird, like, Cold War conspiracy, I can't trust anyone, abused child thing at the start, right? You know, but on a craft level, like a quality level... Absolutely. Like, Curse of the Cat People is 100% a better movie than this. So I was torn. But I put that as my ceiling. Okay. And then, working my way down, I stopped around 94 with Genuina, mm. 1920, because of the German Expressionist stuff, obviously, and, um, you know, Genuina is kind of just, like, hijacking a trend a little bit. Uh, Invaders from Mars is kind of hijacking a trend. But, as we just said, in terms of, like, the making of a movie... I think Invaders from Mars should go above Genuina. Yeah, totally. So that's my range, 81 to 94. So because of the what you said, like this being a scarier movie than Curse of the Cat People, um, I'm tempted to put this above Curse of the Cat People, even though it's not a better movie quality-wise. Okay. Um, you How know, far above? Well, if we look above Curse of the Cat People... Like, what's right above that is Invisible Man Returns, which has, like, one really disturbing scene near the middle, and the rest of which is kind of, like, been there, done that with the original Invisible Man. Um, right above that is Corpse Vanishes, which is a movie that's just kind of weird. Yeah, the Corpse Vanishes, I think, has that, like, unintentionally goofy mm-hmm. thing that we identified with Invaders from Mars. Um, not a super original story. We've never seen anything like Invaders from Mars before. Well... Like, we've seen aspects of it. Yeah. But not in this particular version. I also think, again, Invaders from Mars is scarier because Corpse Vanishes has that 1940s thing where what's making the movie horrific is, like, the premise. Like, oh, it's so morbid. Like, he's getting corpses and he's using them to rejuvenate his wife. Like, ugh. But this, like, people die on screen. A child is the first to die. And, and well, and the structure of that, of the movie Corpse Vanishes is the structure of a lot of 1940s, which is that they're kind of structured like mysteries that you already know the answer to. Like, the audience knows that there's a big monster and the rest of the story is like, the breeding pair 
having to snoop around to find out what's going on, right? Yeah. Th- this is a lot scarier, I think, just from a structural point of view. Above that, we have Dark Eyes of London, which we identified as being like... An offshoot point into police procedural, almost. Yeah, into the like... Thriller stuff. Yeah, the, the like cop tracks down a serial killer genre, right? Um, above that, Mark, Mark of the, the Vampire, Vampire, which is a copy of Dracula, but with a weird over-the-top Lionel Barrymore performance where it turns out that it's all not real. At the end, it's just a, a, a charade. I think comparing the it's not real mm-hmm. thing, um, at least with Invaders from Mars, it's like a, but was it? Or yeah. is it? And um, it's presented. And it's better done. Well, it's it, more better done. It's more better done. It's more better done, Ben. Gr- because it's not like we see like, oh, they're putting on like the makeup and, and whatever. It's like, no, like this is, it's real to him yeah. during the nightmare. And then when he wakes up, it's like, but is this real? Yeah, absolutely. And everything's being presented to us in the dream as this is what's happening. Yeah. Right? It's only retroactively that you know that things aren't happening. Like, okay, I I feel like we're getting into a little bit of a, a trap that we fell into with Jungle captive or whatever the fuck, where it was like half the stock footage yeah. and half a really good performance by John Carradine. And that always becomes like a sticking point with that movie. And with Invaders from Mars, we got so much, I, I feel like at least a quarter of the movie is the army stock footage and the running around in tunnels. But you know, at least that's in service to the same plot. It's not like a sure. completely other plot. I'm going to pitch you a spot here, because okay. we're, I think we're really close to where I think the right spot is. All right. Because right above Mark of the Vampire is Ghost of Frankenstein. And Ghost of Frankenstein is just, hey, let's do some stuff from Son of Frankenstein and the original Frankenstein again, but with Lon Chaney as the monster and not as well done. Yeah. Right? It's a, it's a greatest hits collection, even though it's not a stock footage movie. Um, right above that is Student of Prague. And it's the 30s version of Student Prague, the Nazi Germany version of Student of Prague. Um, you know, so it's not the best version of Student of Prague, which is evidenced by the fact that it's the lowest one on the list. 75. But, like, it's still Anton Walbrook, who's a really good actor, and it's still a horror movie. It, They're they, still putting money into it. They, they tone down the supernatural thing way down. Um, but I think this is as high as I go because... You know, above that then, like, we have Soul of a Monster, which is also, like, a weird movie that's cheap, but again is, like, very threatening. Um, You know, it's, there's some movies above here that are in the weird category, and, like, who knows if this is quite horror or not, like Murders in the Room Morgue and Dracula's Daughter and stuff, but all of these movies are certainly horror movies for adults, and where the things that are happening are real, and I think that puts them on a slightly higher level than this movie. Um, but I think this movie's definitely better than Ghost of Frankenstein, which is kind of a snooze. So, you liked the 35 Student of Prague more than I did. Yeah. But I would agree that it is still a bit of that German Expressionist vibe mm-hmm. going on. They cut down the supernatural, as you said, so it's not, like, as German Expressionist as previous Student of Prague's. But um, I think it's... 
strangely comparable because the German Expressionism in Invaders from Mars is most explicit on that pathway and in the police station, mm -hmm. but otherwise is mainly just like it edges a bit into the surreal yeah. more than German Expressionist specifically. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about above or below it? I feel like I think it's still like comparable to the 35 Student of Prague because, as you said, that movie was made during the Nazi regime and taking over the cultural industries. Mm -hmm. And Invaders from Mars is, um, you could argue, is like helping stoke the flames of the Red Scare by invoking those fears. Mm -hmm. It's hard with horror movies. It's a difficult debate, and I think it's one we're going to end up having more and more as we move into the 20th century. The idea of whether horror movies stoke fears or... Capitalize? Capitalize on them, which are two different things. Yeah. Or the third possibility, which is not um, exclusive to being capitalized on, is are they there to give you a healthy outlet for those fears? Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, a horror movie is meant to scare you, so it's smart to play on the things that people in society at large are afraid of right now. If you want something that tells you that, like, don't do witch hunts and communism is good, actually, go watch Star Trek, right? Like, yeah. um, I think Invaders from Mars is offering a healthy outlet for those fears that a child is experiencing and doesn't quite understand. Yeah, the 35 Student of Prague is... What it's running up against is the fact that the Nazi cultural program was adverse to horror films. They didn't want to be doing horror films. So it's it's like they're running up against that, right? And they're they're so they're emphasizing the romantic drama parts of it a lot, which makes sense. You have Anton Walbrook. Right above Student of Prague is Soul of a Monster, which is a bizarre movie with the like um woman Lady who's devil. the yeah, the woman who's the devil and like she's mind controlling the dude to for reasons. And it was all a dream. Oh, you're right. I had forgotten that movie was also all a dream. Uh, this is... I... This is, yeah, this is becoming an issue. Okay, let me say we shouldn't go higher than Murders in the Room Morgue. No, absolutely like, not. I'm not letting you, us do that. Okay, so I feel like, as previously stated, Invaders from Mars does the It Was All a Dream much better than some of these other movies, especially Soul of a Monster. Um, the Devil's Hand is convoluted. And yeah, only a horror movie for, like, brief periods. Vamp what is Vampire's Ghost? Vampire's Ghost is the one that was Dracula in Africa. It was, like, in colonial Africa, and there was the white guy who owned the bar, and he turned out to be the vampire, and there was the whole thing with, like, um, they get killed by... African natives out in the jungle. Oh, and like they're the, using the drums to communicate. Yeah, and it's like the silver oh, arrow, yeah, 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 and then yeah. he helps get the vampire back to, like, the vampire is brought back to life by the full moon, so that's why he's the vampire's ghost now, and yeah, that one. Right. Um, so that movie, like, yeah, it's goofy, and I think, like, you could be like, oh yeah, my kid can watch that, whatever, but I have a feeling that it would not have been marketed for children. No, not at all. Um, right above that, The Mummy's Tomb, just to remind you of which mummy movie that is, that's the movie where the mummy comes to small town America, and it's the, it's Halloween, 
you know, the slasher movie, but with mm-hmm. The Mummy. I know I've said this already, and broken it, but I'm not putting Invaders from Mars above The Mummy's Tomb. Yeah. I think um, that's good. Yeah. To me, the f- the spot that feels right is above Le Main du Diable, but below The Vampire's Ghost. And I say that because The Vampire's Ghost was mixing some tropes together, and we, we yes. were surprised at like how much we actually enjoyed it. Yeah. And how well it was mixing some of these things. Yeah. If you want to listen to that, folks, you can find that at episode 129. But this is this is where I feel. It is the right spot. I'm going to give you a counterpoint, which is I can guarantee you'll remember Invaders from Mars in six months. And you just had a really hard time remembering which one <laughs> of the vampire's ghost is. But like 100% you're going to remember Invaders from Mars. Yeah, that is absolutely fair. Okay. Okay, cool, whatever. Do it. Okay, so entering the list at the new number 72, Invaders from Mars, from 1953, directed by William Cameron Menzies. And this is below the mummy's tomb and above the vampire's ghost, just to be clear, because (laughs) I I feel like (laughs) this was like a confusing ranking session. Fair. Um... If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today. Um, That's also where you can find an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line there, or you can reach out directly through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and you can also subscribe to the show through our RSS feed. If you want to help support the show, you can leave us a rating or a review on the podcast app you use that allows you to do that. Apple Podcasts is the most helpful to do that on. You can also share the show through social media or just telling people about it. And if you have the means and the desire to, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. In the period since we recorded the intro, and <laughs> now we have another new patron to thank, so two new patrons to thank in this episode. Uh, it's the Putting It Together podcast that is now supporting our podcast. And that is produced by Kyle Marshall, so thank you, Kyle. And... Um, Putting It Together, if anyone's interested, is a podcast about Stephen Sondheim's entire body of work by show and song by song, and it's really fun. Yeah, um, and I'm sure he's probably already done Sweeney Todd, so probably find some episodes on those songs uh, to stay within your horror box, if that's the box you want to stay in. So if you'd like to be like Kyle or Sarah, you can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. And kick in as little as a dollar a month, or join the higher levels, five and ten dollars, which get exclusive bonus content. What are we watching next week, Ben? So next week we're watching a film from the same director, William Cameron Menzies. This is actually going to be his final film uh, as a director. I think he continues to do production design work, but I'll find out and we'll learn together <laughs> next week. It's also our first film from AAP, a indie film distributor that we're going to be seeing a lot of in the future, and we actually already know 
but I will also talk about that next week. It's in 3D. Oh. But it's black and white. It's The Maze from 1953. And what I know about this movie is very little, because I've never seen it. But I've been told it's a gothic horror Lovecraftian movie. Dope. Sign me up. As long as it leaves Lovecraft's racism at the door. Yeah, it's not actually based on any of his stories. It's just his type of horror. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Love it. Awesome. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.